So I am sitting here with Craig Moore. Craig uh, works with National Land Realty, but has an extensive background in forestry, which is the conversation that I'm, I'm excited to have for sure. Uh, so Craig, just want to hit you out of the gate. Tell me how, you know, a little bit about your background and how you got with National Land Realty. Well, I uh, at the age of 20, I decided I wasn't going anywhere too quickly. So I decided to go to college and I'd always loved uh, the outdoors and I decided, you know, maybe forestry was the way I wanted to go. And I had a uh, brother that worked at a company in St. Louis called HUD Accession Door, and they owned a sawmill in Missoula, Montana. And I wanted to get out of where I was living and go somewhere far away. And so he got me a job at the sawmill. And in the night, it'd be 1984, I think, 83. And uh, I went there and worked in the summer earned enough money to start college. I started at the University of Montana in forestry and enjoyed that very much and uh, eventually wound up back in Southern Illinois and got my uh, finished up my degree at Southern Illinois University, learned a little bit more about the hardwoods. And as I, um, that would be on the forestry side, but then on the real estate side, I eventually, as I, and we'll talk about this later, but uh, when I got into business, I would sell timber for landowners and they would, uh, you know, eventually say, you know, I think I'm going to sell this ground. And so I thought it was foolish for me not to be able to help them in that area. So I decided to get my real estate license in 2002. And then it got to a point where I, um, in 2008, it looked like I was going to uh, um, work with my broker and open up a Mossy Oak Properties office. And that fell through because the economy crashed. And then, uh, uh, so I just kind of stayed there on my own. But then I got a call from Logan to potentially join National Land Realty. And I'll admit on the front end that I really had no intention of having any part of joining an organization because my initial, I guess, hesitancy was when I was with a broker, uh, there's just a lot of meetings and things that were just not what I wanted to focus on was land. So, but I wanted, I, I listened to them, but the burden I had as a one man show was I had to do everything. And I really, if I put something on one website, I'd have to move it and I'd have to put it on another. I had to duplicate. It was just exhausting. And I didn't even want to have agents because it was just too tedious. And so, uh, but then when I realized that they would be able to take the burdens off of me and allow me to do what I want to do and 
make things a lot easier, then it became a lot easier to want to bring on some agents. And so I'm just tickled to be with them and it was the best decision I made. I, I, you know, I, I feel like I should have given you some kind of reimbursement for the promotional there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to talk to anybody else that's considering uh, coming on. I'm trying to get my son, get him, get his broker's license in Wyoming. Cause you still don't have an agent or a uh, uh, broker in Wyoming. That's one of the few States you haven't broke into. You know, what's ex- that's really funny. I l- quite literally just maybe 20 minutes ago was having a conversation about how we didn't have an agent in Wyoming. I can't remember what we were talking about even, uh, but I was having that exact same conversation. Well, let me just explain. Uh, there was a lady that did become a broker and um, he ended up joining her. But then after about a year, she left and joined another agency as a broker. So right. that left him without a broker. And now he's got enough experience. He's a little more than two years into it. So we're trying to work it out where he can get the time to get his broker's license. I said, it'd be a great opportunity. Yeah. You need to let him do that. Cause I need an excuse to go down to Wyoming. Okay. Well, he's a good, he's a fly fishing guide and he's a good elk hunter. So he, you guys would probably hit it off pretty good. I, so fly fishing is kind of my thing. So uh, yeah, I definitely need an excuse to go. Need, need yeah. to set up an introduction there. I, I'm, I'm okay. interested in that. Okay. Um, so, so you started out in Montana and now you're in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Where all have you done this at? Where all have you worked with forestry at? Well, that's a good question. In college, it was important to me to get experience. So I spent two summers working for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and some of the uh, impoundment lakes in Illinois and got some experience there, a little more on the law enforcement side. And then I was able to get a job with the Missouri Department of Conservation one summer in Northeast Missouri, uh, working mostly on forest management activities, mainly timber stand improvement. And that was some really good experience. And I kind of really wanted to be a conservation police officer, just never really worked out. But then um, I got, when I graduated college, I got a job with US Forest Service and myself and nine of my other friends who all had degrees. And it's, you have to realize back then it was kind of hard to get jobs, particularly permanent jobs. And so we had a graduate in Alaska and he, they needed help desperately. So he hired all 10 of us to go up there and work in Southeast Alaska. And we worked on the Tongass National Forest and we were on a timber sale, what we call timber sale layout crew, where we would put the boundaries around some timber sales that were coming up. Now these were roadless areas. We were flown in by helicopter, dropped off, go do our field work, picked up by helicopter, brought back. It was just a tremendous experience and one I won't ever forget. And that from there, able to get um, transferred over to to Pennsylvania to work for the U.S. Forest Service on the continuous forest inventory, because all these states that are have significant timber volumes are inventoried by the U.S. government on a periodic basis. If it's in the far south, Alabama, Georgia, it's done like every seven years. If it's Kentucky or some of these other states, it's like every 13 years. So I literally would go to a county and we would inventory that whole county. And then we go on to the next county and do another county. And that's so if an industry wanted to come in, they could tell the industry, here's how much forest resources we have. And here's whether it would work for your operation. And it wasn't until uh, a little after. So I worked there in Pennsylvania. And then for some reason, uh, they needed help in Alabama. So they transferred me. I went from freezing my tail off to beautiful (laughs) weather in Alabama. And that was a great experience. And then... 
I got my first permanent job, and that was with the Kentucky Division of Forestry in uh, 1990. So you've been yeah. in Kentucky since 1990 then? Yes, yes. So you've done forestry throughout the United States, and I'm going to sound dumb saying it, United States and Alaska, but there's a good amount of land between the, the intercontinental United States and Alaska. I would take that as a whole different area as far as taking the timber inventory there as far as the environment, right? Yes, it, it would be a lot. And markets change. Markets change just counties away from me. It's it's You get to know your area, but when you get out of your core area, it's a whole different situation. I got to sell some timber in Illinois a few years ago, about a three-hour drive from me, and I did it a little bit more for the challenge, but nobody knew me up there. And so I had to, I kind of sent an introduction letter with my sales. I said, look, you don't know me, but I've been doing this at that time, 25 years. And I just try to get make them at, at ease that what I was providing them was good information, accurate information. They could depend on it. But it changes a lot depending on where you're at. And this is everything from just, you know, I, I would call it more localized timber where, you know, there's there's road access. Because what you're talking about in Alaska, are you talking about helicopter logging up there? Well, no, it was it just at, at that t- the way they did it was. They did all the forest inventory work before road was even built into it. Oh, that's so what I was curious we were, if they were going to build the infrastructure later or if there yes. was helicopter logging on it. Yes. You could see the survey. You could see the survey flagging where the roads were going to go and everything. But at that time, it was a roadless area. And it was costing like at the time I was up there in the 80s, it was um, it was $50,000 a mile to build a road. I mean, it was expensive and it was uh, and it was it was in the Tongass National Forest, it's kind of a temperate rainforest. They get about 150 inches of rain a year. So you had to just be prepared to work in the rain all the time. But the and fishing I, was awesome. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, oh, yeah, I can't even. I, I've, I've been to, to Prince of Wales and then fish. That's where we were. That's where we were. Okay. I know exactly where you were. And it is so, so thick. It's unreal. Yeah, you don't. There's places out. I was in Oregon this summer at a forestry meeting, and they have all these acres, and they're showing all the fire damage they've had over the years. But they still go in and replant. Well, in Alaska, you just cut it, and it comes back like hair on your dog's back that just walked in the room there, and it is just as thick as can be. And so they didn't have to do anything. But at the time, this was all virgin timber. Like to give you an example, around me, our forest stands average on the low end, if they're marketable, 2,000 board feet per acre to really good 10, 12,000 board feet per acre. That would be really good around me. In Alaska, we were at 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 board feet per acre. It's just the, the volumes just, it'll blow your mind. And it was, but it was all virgin, hadn't been cut. That's amazing. So yeah, we, and we were up there in, it was a clear cut area where we were, they, yeah. there, they'd been doing clear cuts. We hiked there's, I think it's one of the tallest peaks on Prince of Wales. It's so you hike up above the tree line there. Yeah. And uh, so we were hiking. We we <laughs> we were smart Idaho guys, right? We're like, yeah, we can handle ourselves. And so we had a car drop us off. We'll be back. You know, come pick us up around seven. We'll just dodge bears. And <laughs> we hiked through there. I didn't realize exactly what we were in for hiking through that forest because there's so much deadfall. You can right. barely get in between the trees. It's it it is crazy, and you know at the time 
they had a uh, contract with the U.S. government, uh, International Paper, and I think one other company, uh, 100-year contract to cut the timber. And those contracts have since either got canceled or ended, and I don't even know what forest activities are doing up there, but I can't imagine there's a lot of marketable timber on that island right now. Yeah, it, uh, I don't know if it's marketable. It's just, it's thick. It, yeah. It's, well, if you'd have been in the woods we were in, it was just like, it was just wide open. It was just mossy and it, you yeah. had no problems getting through other than it being slippery. So that was the other thing too. It's like, so there was deadfall all over the place because I think they recently logged it, but the moss is like a foot thick and you fall right. down every 20 feet. Yeah, I got pictures of me standing next to trees and just the, the swell of the butt is just bigger than me. I mean, it's, they're just, they were phenomenal. And if you were a resident up there at that time, you could have 10,000 board feet of timber off the forest uh, for your building your house. And a lot of people built their houses out of that. Oh yeah. And it's not exactly a large population. So that's, I I feel like we could rabbit hole on this for quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) So, so tell me a little bit just about, um, you know, you know, you, you've built this, this career in forestry, and now you're working in in real estate. How do the two complement each other, and what do you work with specifically? Do you target timber investments when you're working with real estate, or do you kind of work all over the board, and that just happens to be a specialty? They kind of go hand in hand. The, the bulk of my work is the forestry consulting. That just comes by word of mouth. Uh, the phone rings. Somebody gave my name to somebody, and then that's usually how that gets started. And then I build relationships with these people. And then when they go to sell, some of them come back to me and say, hey, I realized you had a, a real estate background. And and then, then we go from there. Now, I will tell you, since I've come on with national land, I get calls and I've told the leadership at the, maybe two years ago, I said, I get calls from people. I don't know how they got my number. They would never have gotten it if I they were looking for Craig Moore with Land and Timber Realty. It wasn't until national land puts those algorithms out. I get calls. I got a call from Texas here recently from some people who found me and they wanted me to help them find a piece of property in Kentucky because I look like Jeremy. Um, oh, the car, um, the car show, the uh, Jeremy. Um, oh gosh. She's with the, uh, if you ever seen the great, uh, car show on on uh oh yeah 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 i jeremy i want to say no jeremy clarkson jeremy yeah, clarkson. okay, okay. <laughs> they well he's also had a show about him as a farmer i don't know if you ever saw that no i didn't it's kind of a comedy type show well they thought they thought of me as like jeremy clarkson and so they hired me because i was like jeremy clarkson <laughs> that's funny and we went out and they it's amazing they drove up from houston and they said we're gonna buy something I thought they were just kind of coming to look around and kick tires and everything. They said, no, we're going to buy something. And we went around, we found something and they didn't need a lot of acres or anything, but it's those kind of things that if it weren't for being with national land, I would never, it would never would have happened. Oh yeah. So, (laughs) so with that, you work a lot with, is it timber investors or is it? No, it's, it's primarily, if I had to put the primary one, it's uh, recreational hunters because Kentucky has, is noted for their quality deer because we've got a one buck limit in the state, which a lot of states don't have. They have multiple buck limits and we grow some pretty decent deer. And so the people from Alabama, Georgia, and Florida look at it as, you know, a great place to come. And so a lot of the people that buy land up here recreationally are coming from other states. And so that's pretty much now 
really, I we're not in an industrial state in terms of industrial timberlands. We don't have big, I mean, there is some in East Kentucky. You do have some people that have some large land holdings, but we're nothing like Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And then you have these big industrial holdings and they hire these foresters to manage them and things like that. We're just not that way. We're just a mostly private landowners, probably average 50, 60 acres. And, but I don't get many people calling me to say, I just want to buy timber as an investment. It just doesn't happen very much. Gotcha. So, so it's a lot, a lot of it is like kind of cultivating landscape to where there's woods, but there's not so many woods that it doesn't hold animals. Right. That's correct. That's correct. And so, you know, within that, you know, that's, that's another good conversation because that's something that people always talk about is crown spacing to be able to hold Mm -hmm. animals. Just a a brief kind of overview, because a lot of people talk about it is, is the fact that you do need some thinning in the trees to be able to hold that because it creates a dead zone, right? That's correct. And what's interesting is back in the earlier years of selling real estate, the hunters wanted the open woods where they could see and they could see the deer and everything. They liked that. And then as quality deer management caught on and all this, you know, cutting and you know, deer are early succession. A lot of people don't think about that, but they'd rather be in the cut over thick areas. There's a lot more there for them, cover and food. And so these hunters start calling me now that saying, I want to thicken things up. And so yeah, I spend my time trying to manipulate the the stand to get what they want. They want openings. They don't want it completely clear cut by any means, but they want things that will help hold the deer and keep them in there. And there's a, there's a lot... Um, there's a lot of good management that can be done. Most of our stands in Kentucky have been high graded in the past, meaning the best trees have been taken and the worst are left behind. And so I go in there and look at it. We just finished one this week that beech was a dominant species. Now beech should never be a dominant species in the stand. It it should be down way down here. And so we really hit the beech hard and it had too much sugar maple, but the, all the good oak had been pulled off of it and it had very little oak in it. So I try to educate them on it because once they see what I'm seeing, then they say, yeah, I see how that makes sense. And so we want to try to keep your white oak and red oak and poplar and ash and walnut. We want those to be at the top of the list of your species dominance. And we want the hickory and the beech and the black gum and hickory. We want those. We want those down lower on the list. Yeah. And what's the reason for that? I'm just curious. Well, (laughs) believe it or not, the most valuable trees are the red oak, white oaks, poplar and ash and things like that. They're also some of the best uh, food sources for the animals. And it's just what was here when this place, they're the, they were the dominant, you know, we're called the old oak hickory forest. That's what our woods have been dominated by. But our woods are, in a lot of places, are becoming slowly turning over to a more of a shade tolerant woodland, and that would be the beet, sugar maple, and things like that. In fact, we're, obviously, we're a bourbon state, and there's white oak, uh, logs are used to make bourbon barrels and you can only use a bourbon barrel once to, if it's going to be called bourbon. So you've got to have white oak and there, there's a task force on uh, making sure we don't run out of white oak because they're concerned that we're going to run out of it because the demand for whiskey barrels since COVID has gone kind of through the roof. And so I, as a forester, I want white oak. And so I want to manage for it. And so I, I want to do whatever I can to make it as abundant as possible. I was just having this exact conversation with a new agent, James Lyles, that that came on board and he was involved with white oak conservation. And I'd never even heard of this. I recorded that podcast uh, this week. Oh, the, 
it's called the Wide Oak Initiative, is what yeah. it's called. And I just learned about all this, and it's like you think about it, just the the rate the oak grows. You're talking about a problem that you've got to solve 30 years in advance because of that's you know it takes that long to grow them, right? That's true. And back in you know the chain, turn of the century into the 40s and 50s, we didn't have the deer population, turkey population, and things like that. A lot of people just kept them kind of cleaned out. And so reproducing those species was not hard, but now there's so many, we got a lot of turkey, we got a lot of deer, all the acorns get gobbled up pretty quickly. But it's probably the biggest thing, we don't, we kind of shut down fire on our forest. And that's generally a good thing. Hardwoods do not tolerate fire well, but fire does do some things that help kind of make the soil uh, better suited to reproducing seedlings or getting uh, acorns to reproduce. And so, but the biggest thing is probably the shade tower and understory. So typically in our woods, you'll have some oaks in the, the bigger oaks in the overstory, but in the understory, you'll have trees that love the shade and that'd be sugar maple and beech. And they'll just sit in the understory. And then when you cut off the oaks, then the maple and beech becomes your dominant stand. And then that's, once they're, they're in there, not enough sun's ever gonna reach the floor to reproduce any oak. And so therefore, you know, that's a big problem. So I want to jump into forestry stuff here because uh, mm-hmm. it, it is the, part of part of what's so fun about doing the podcast is I get to ask questions that I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> I get to be selfish about it. Yeah. Uh, so site indexing, I want to jump into it. Um, you know, I I know what it is. I, I know that the site indexing is an assessment on trees and what you can get out of it. But from you, with your experience, I have a feeling I'm about to get to get an education if I ask the question of what is a site index? Well, it's basically a gauge of productivity. So it's around in the central hardwood section, site site index is a number of, it's the height of the trees, the average height of the dominant, co-dominant trees at 50 years of age. If you're down in Alabama and Georgia and you're in pine, it would be at 25 years of age. So if you have a tree that's 50 feet tall at 50 years old, that's a side index of 50. That would be considered pretty low productivity by my standards. And I think by most anybody's standards, it's when you get that side index of 70, 80, that's kicking up there pretty good. Or if you can grow a tree that's 80 foot tall, 50 years, that's, that's a pretty good clip right there. And so all that is, is just telling you that, if you see that now, if you go on like the web soil survey and you look up the soil type, it should be able to tell you what the site index is for that soil. So it tells you how productive that soil should be for those for trees. And that's related to soil pH and water <laughs> and you know how much rainfall, like what all goes into that? Prob- probably a lot of it, the organic matter, the type of uh, you know, lack of rock, which would be better for it. Uh, you know, forest soils are generally very acidic. They're in the 5.5, 5.8. So they're not good to grow a lot of things. Trees just do great in them, but you're not going to get the crops to do good. And but there's so much more that goes into product- productivity of a, a stand. It's not so much the soil type, it's the direction the slope faces. People don't ever think about that. But if, you, if you've ever had a house that's facing the south, you know at the end of the day, that sun is beating your house to death and you don't even want to go out back because the sun's just going to beat it to death. Well, in the woods, that's going to make a south slope is going to get beat to death and it's going to make it a lot drier. And when it's a lot drier, 
it's going to have a different species, species that tolerate that that extreme site. But if your house is facing the north, you know, or even your woods faces the north, the sun rises and falls and never really directly hits it uh, like it would if you're facing the south. So your moisture stays in your soils longer. It's not pumped out by the trees because of the excessive heat. And so that makes a tremendous difference. You can go in my county here, you can be on a north slope and it timber just beautiful. And you cross over onto the south slope, the rocks start sticking out of the ground, the productivity falls off tremendously, and you just don't have much there to, to work with until you start to get down to the lower part of the slope. And this east-facing slope is good too. It, you know, you get the sun in the morning, but you don't have to work deal with it in the hot part of the day and the last part of the day. I was going to say, there's a, a friend of mine just bought a property here in Idaho, and, and it, he, yeah, we were. I was telling him that he was buying property in an ice box, and, and yeah. his quote to me was like, "Well, I'm I'm on a south slope. It's not an ice box." And I was like, "Yeah, but you're on the backside of a, of a north slope that's very very steep. That north, yes, the on the south slope, but the sun never gets past the other ridge, man." And right. He, he kept that for about three years. Yeah. <laughs> it was cold. It's, it's it's what you should think of uh, at least uh and when i know later you're going to talk about uh what people should consider when they're buying land and that's one of the things i'm going to mention yeah very much so well so while we're on site indexing because i've seen people use it and i don't know what it is or how it's used what's the crystal thing what is the glass okay okay the, the, the help me out here yeah these are prisms okay you can see it in my thing i know we're not well you're these not are, <laughs> This is a, a wedge prism, and there's lots of ways to inventory a forest. Foresters, most of them around here use these prisms because they're, it's just an easy way to do inventory. And if you look at it, it's, it's, the prism's in the shape of a kind of a narrow triangle. And what happens is, Mac, when you, when you stop to take an inventory point in your forest, you're going to take this wedge prism and you're going to hold it up and you're going to look at it through it and you're going to look at the trees around you, you're going to make a complete circle and you're going to look at each tree. Well, when you pull that prism up to the tree, what it's going to do is it's going to take that tree and it's going to break it into two pieces. So you're going to see the tree, you're going to pull the prism up and next thing you know, your tree gets ocularly broken into two pieces. And when it does that, if when it's broken into two pieces and they overlap still, then that tree is going to be counted in your inventory. But if it breaks it apart and you can't and they don't touch, it's like the tree's broken too and they're not touching each other, then you don't count that tree. That tree is out of the, the area that you're inventorying. And it's 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 what it is, a variable radius prism. It you could have a big tree far away and still be in, but you could have a little tree pretty close and it not be in because the prism breaks it in two. And so what happens is this this prism right here is a, called a 10-factor prism. So every tree that you look at that is broken into but still touching each other, still overlapping, represents 10 square feet of basal area per acre. Now that doesn't really mean a whole lot to most people. What it is, is if you took each tree you counted, let's say you counted seven of them, and you cut them all down and you measured the square feet of the stumps, you should have about 70 square feet of basal area. That's really what it's telling you. But it doesn't, I, I don't talk with it, uh, landowners about it. Nobody ever asked me, you're one, you're the first one since college that asked me about it. But if you said to me that it's, you know, once I take the, the species and diameter and height and I calculate all that information, then I could say there's 
5,000 board feet per acre. That, that means something to somebody then. So that's what's, are you taking, when, when you're going through, you use that. So what you're looking at is the, the, the stump size or the, the tree size, right? And whether that makes sense to, you know, whether it's like a harvestable size, because if they overlap, then they're getting to the size where they're, they're harvestable. Is that? No, no, it's okay. I had this I all wrong. I'm trying to follow you. You got as long as that tree. Okay. Well, as long as let's say we're counting everything, we want little trees, big trees, everything. As long as that tree, when it's broke, still overlaps, we're going to count that tree. Now that little bitty tree may be counted as pulpwood. Okay. But the bigger trees, let's say above 13, 12 or 13 inches diameter, and foresters measure trees four and a half feet above the ground. We don't measure them at stump. We're not pointing this prism at the stump. We're looking at it at four and a half at eye level, basically. Okay. Because trees swell. They swell at the base. So we don't want to, we don't want to be, we want to catch it at its form point where it kind of reaches a, a, a decent form, four and a half feet above the ground. And then we're going to note the uh the species, diameter, and height. We're going to put in our little field computer. And so what we're doing, we're just sampling the forest in spots. For when we go out and inventory woodland, and we do this for our clients who have timberland and we're listing the property, we in the office look at the map and we put inventory points on the map before we go out there and we stick those in the GPS. Because one thing we want to guard against is bias. We don't want to, we don't want to go out there and we if it was if it's up to me, I'd like to go to all the big trees and ignore the little ones, but we don't do that. So then we go into the woodland. The GPS tells us to stop. It beeps at us, and boom, we stop. And then we use a prism, and we count the trees that fall into the plot. We note those in our computer, and then we move on to the next point. And so it's no different than sampling the people on a voting issue. You know, you sample a certain number of people, you're going to get a certain amount of accuracy. And that's what what we do as far as uh, just an inventory. Now, we also do timber marking where we go in and we just – the only trees that are for sale are the ones that we mark for sale. That's a whole – different things and you see i see that all the time in pine forest where it's and you're usually trying to you're taking trees but you're leaving trees at a certain ratio to help build a forest behind it and then you know responsible responsible logging right yes yes and pine are very sensitive to um becoming stagnant a hardwood you can stagnate a hardwood it could be in the understory for years and years and finally you cut the overstory off and the hardwood will pick up and take off and, and you'll see the rings expand pine if you don't thin it at by 20 or 20, maybe 22, 24, man, because they plant so many trees per acre and it just becomes, you thin it, it does, there's so little crown, live crown left that it doesn't really respond well. So you got to, got to hit it at the right time and then they really take off. Gotcha. Okay. So in, in terms of timber, and I had, I had a series of questions here for you. Um, because I, I didn't, the, the side index. Well, okay. Let me before I hit you with another question. Are we missing any details that could help fill us in anymore on side indexing? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's again, if you see if you see anything in a uh, something written in like let's say you're looking up soil type and it tells you side index, anything above sixty would be pretty decent. If you're sixty, seventy, eighty side index, yes, that would be pretty decent. That's what you need to know. Okay. And it's the height of the tree in our area. It's, it's uh, the average height of the co- dominant and co-dominant trees at age 50. Got you. Okay. Just and, a tool really is what it is. And so you want, you want a site index above 60. Yes. Preferably 70, but 60, 
And you got to remember, we talked about the north and south and east slopes. That's you're going to have that in the forest. That north slope is going to be maybe a side index 75, and that south slope could be a side index 60 or 58 or something like that. Okay, I got you. Yeah. And so another question I want to ask you is, you know, which timber holds the most value? And I mean, we're talking and I would look at it from a landowner perspective. If I was looking at land and I was considering timber as an investment, what what particular types of timber tend to hold the the better value? Right now, it would be white oak and walnut are the 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 dominant value trees. White oak, again, has gone crazy, but used to be. When I got in business, red oak was worth more than white oak. But any of the any of the major white oak, red oak, ash, poplar, walnut, those are the ones you really want to have because the hickory and beech, there's just a limit to what their upside is. It's just not going to be that great. And that's another reason why you want to grow those species. So the key is hardwoods in general. I would I would say in general to hold the most value, but of those where you're talking about the you oak. You want white oak. And yeah. we don't. See, walnut's a very particular tree on the site. It wants 30 inches. It would like 30 inches of deep soil to grow. And so you generally find those around the creeks and things like that where the soils are the deepest. So you're never going to have much walnut for the most part. Now, the other species you can, the white oak, red oak, they can grow on a lot more variety of sites. And those are the ones that I look, you know, white oak is the one I would be shooting for. Red oak, is fine, but and you're going to have them both. You're not going to get one over the other. We recently marked a track that had 60% white oak, which is phenomenally unusual. It would normally not be maybe 20, 30% of the stand. Then you got your poplar and everything else. But again, it kind of goes back to the productivity of the site. You want those sites that are the best north and east facing. If you can have a predominance of that, that's really going to help you to to build value over time much faster. It's like a higher interest rate over a lower interest rate. And and you've mentioned it, and I've heard it mentioned elsewhere, like with, with white oak holding greater value than most other trees, this is primarily due to the bourbon industry? It's a combination of things, but yes, the bourbon industry and the lumber industry in general, there's, 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 there's lumber logs that get cut into lumber, there's stave logs that get cut cut into staves for whiskey barrels. And then there's veneer that gets used for furniture. And veneer is where they they shave the, the wood into very thin slices and they put it over a piece of lesser quality wood and you have a veneer on top. Well, the lumber price gets up and then the stave people have trouble getting logs. So then the staves say, well, we got to raise our stave prices. And so then they raise their prices and then veneer people, we got to raise our price. So they're all kind of competing against each other. And just an example, I talked to a logger uh, last week and we were talking about white oak. And he said that he had a uh, acquaintance that just sold 95, sold 95 logs. No, he sold 50, 50 trees and got $95,000 for them. Oh my. That's just how crazy it's gotten. Uh, you're, you're starting to see used to be timber. Most timber will sell under for, if I sell a track of timber, most time it's going to bring 30 cents a foot, 40 cents a foot, 50 cents a board foot on average. But we're starting to see where white Oak is bringing two, three, $4 a foot. And so that just pulls, it just changes the whole game. I, we marked a track that I t- mentioned had 60% white oak. 
that stand is probably going to be the highest per board foot grossing stand I've ever had. And that's really more a function on just what White Oak has done. But I think I tell my landowners that if you talk to them about how much it brings per board foot, that doesn't resonate as much as I said, look, you, you know, you're potentially going to get on this stand seven, $8,000 an acre, man, that's real money. $78,000 an acre for a timber sale. And, and that was, that's a selective marking, at least around here. Now that's on, again, a, a white oak, a, a stand that's got 60% white oak on it, really good quality, good veneer, staves, everything on it. But you're starting to see stands bringing $2,000, $3,000 an acre with not a lot of difficulty. And that's, that's really good. And, you know, land up here, recreational hunting land is somewhere between the, $2,000 to $4,000 an acre. And I see there's stuff that gets listed and people don't realize how much timber's on it. And it becomes, it actually is a really good buy because they haven't counted for the value of the timber. Yeah. Well, I was somewhere in this is a joke about, you know, it's the, the, the wood that we build our homes with is not nearly as valuable and valuable as the wood that we destroy our livers with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a, uh, you might, we might die young, but at least we'll have more money, I guess. You know? yes, we all got our priorities, right? <laughs> well, so, um, you know, within, within timber, you know, you're deciding how, how close to grow trees and stuff. I wanted to see, like, as you're planning out a timber stand, how do you establish what, what's the proper crown spacing? It, it depends on use, right? But let's take it in the, in the sense of we want to grow, we want to maximize timber, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so how do you set up establishing crown spacing? <coughs> and then, and then really? take it to a one-on-one level really quick. Crown spacing is the distance between the tops of the trees. So no, this That's is correct. Correct. So as a stand matures, the crowns close and the growth slows. And so then you want to, if you want to increase growth, you have to release them. Uh, you like to ideally release a tree that you want to keep. You like to release it on two sides if possible. And so as a forester, we're in the woods and we're looking and, and usually we're trying to, we're trying to make sure we're, we're keeping what we think needs to be kept and taking what needs to be taken out. And so we're looking at everything. We may not release it on two sides because it, maybe we got two trees we want to keep or something, but we're looking to try to release it enough where it has a chance to expand and grow. Now, as far as the distance between the crowns, <clears throat> you know, there's, if you give a tree sometimes too much crown space, the sun hits the bowl of the tree and it, it causes it to start to branch out on the lower parts of the tree and that affects quality. You want to keep that in mind. But it's really not that big an issue around here. We do a lot of uh, selective and then we do some group selective. So we might get in a spot where we've got 10 or 12 trees that are inferior value and quality. And so we're just going to take all those out. And then we may have some oak around the edge of it that are going to drop acorns into that hole where it's just opened up. And next thing you know, we're, we're back to reproducing oak again. But it is important. But I think the, the biggest importance is just <clears throat> not high grading your timber. That's most of the timber sold around here in Midwest is on a shares method where the logger cuts it and he gives the landowner a share of its value when they takes it to the mill. And, okay, you have to establish, well, what trees are going to be cut? Well, the landowner and logger come to an agreement that we're going to cut all trees that are 16 inches at the stump. Now, that sounds reasonable, 16 inches at stump. But it, 
the criteria is a number, 16. It has said nothing new about the species, says nothing new about the quality. No, all they have to do is meet a minimum size and it's gone. And so there's really no management involved and the stands end up getting high graded where the better trees, because the red oak, white oak, poplar, and ash tend to grow faster than the hickory, black gum, sugar maple, and therefore you get those species left over. And I- Real, real quick before you jump into that, let's, let's define high grading. Okay. That would be taking the best and leaving the rest. That's All right, really there we go. I just want to, yeah, just, I, I, I got to cover those of us that don't, that don't know this. Well, and if they're, if they're selling on the, and if they're selling on the shares, okay, the logger is giving them a portion of whatever he gets when he takes it to the mill. And the logger wants to make as much money as possible. And he wants the landowner to make as much money as possible. So they're, they're looking at it on, is this tree a valuable tree? Well, good. Then I'm going to take it. Oh, this black gum here that's leaning and is kind of crooked, that's that's hardly worth my effort. So I'm gonna leave that tree. And then he then then they leave it. And there's some good loggers. I'm not throwing the loggers under the bus, but if you're selling it on a diameter limit, you need to know that more likely than not, you're you're gonna have a degraded stand on your next sale. So when you go 20, 30 years down the road, you're not gonna have all that oak that you had on the, the last sale because you you did it in such a way where you pulled off some of the most desirables and fastest growing and you left the slower growing hickory and things like that to become your dominant, dominant stand. That brings up a good question. So, you know, like you said, if, 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 if you have your timber high graded, then your next harvest, you know, which could be, you know, 10, 20, 30, maybe even five years, it, it just depends on what's around it. But if you're a landowner and you've got a lot of timber, what do you want to consider before you harvest? You, you don't just want to go to anybody, right? Because you just said you, you might not be working with a logger that has your best interest in mind. Um, you know, you you might be working with a forester that works with that logger. You, you never know. So, right. so if you're a landowner, what do you want to consider before you go to to harvest? Well, the, the reason I don't charge to go visit my clients or potential clients is because I can't really sell them on good forest management unless I'm out there. And so I'm willing to take the risk and the time and go to their property and walk it over with them. And I tell them you're under no obligation to hire me, but I really want to sell them on, I want to see what they got, which I need to do. And I want to sell them on what is the best for it long-term. And usually when they, when I do that, they come around to saying, yeah, this is a, or they've had a bad experience in the past, but they just need to know when you sell on the diameter limit that the risk of, degrading your stand long-term is it's high. And, you know, there's some good farmers out there that do great jobs with their crops and stuff, but they don't seem to put much thought into the management of the woodlands and doing it the right way. The first time means you could have a sale more sooner than you would have, if you just cut it on the diameter limit, you know, you might be 45, 50 years out, but if you do something a little more selective and with some thought to uh, uh, leaving some decent trees and you could have another sale in, um, you know, at 50, age 15, maybe 20 years. They also need to know that when you sell in the shares, you don't get paid for it until it's delivered to the mill. Once these trucks leave the property, it's hard to keep track of everything. In fact, you can't keep track of it most times. And so they can go wherever. And again, there's some good loggers that will pay you every dime you got coming. But I tell you what, there's also some out there that will, you know, maybe you didn't get paid for that load. I've seen where mills will pay them a trucking, a, a trucking bonus but the landowner doesn't is not involved with that, so the logger ends up getting a higher uh, amount for the timber than if um, that the landowner didn't know about. 
And it's just a buyer beware situation. And when I sell timber, it's paid for at the contract signing. There's trees in the woods that are marked. There's no question about what's for sale. There's a contract that states, here's all the provisions, everything you need to do. And then they pay them a check and then they got to have it. They have a certain amount of time to get the timber off of there. And that's the other thing. I see landowners sell timber without a contract. And that's, I would say that's up from business right there. Is, th- is that something the landowner should look for? Is somebody who's going to pay up front? They should. Yes, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why wouldn't you want your money? The great thing, see, on the shares method, if you get to the end of the sale and you don't like, you don't think you got what the timber was worth, it's too late. It really is. But on a, a lump sum sale, you know, if you don't like the, what they've been offered, you're fine. You're free to walk. You don't have to do anything. So and they also should get competition. I mean, if you've got good timber, there's people that will compete for it. And I'm amazed at what some of these buyers will pay for for timber. You just. I was going to say, how many timber outfits would want to throw a shoe at you for what you just told me? <laughs> well, again, I'm, I'm careful because I've got some great loggers around here, but the ones I work with are the ones that are willing to write a check and pay for it up front. And they're happy. You know, they want, I want them to make money. I'm not trying to, do anything, you know, everybody's got to, everybody's got to come out on this in the end. Yeah. So, you know, and I like to say too, there's, there's very few just openly bad actors in the world. Like the, you know, the, your, your total scam artists, like the, there, right. there's not many of those, but when you're looking at business, the business is looking to take care of the business. Their business is not to take care of you. And they're going to be looking for their best interest on that. And like you said, it, maybe the interest is for them is to not pay up front because that costs money, right? That's, that's, that's lack correct. of cash flow and they want to take it. But then there's things that happen along the way. Like you're saying, like, it's hard to track exactly how much food like wood went through. You might not get paid on all the, the wood that went through because that person didn't want to pay up front. It doesn't make them bad. It just means they right. operate differently, but you want to also operate on your best interest. And so you could push back on companies that don't pay up front. It's, it's, it's this balancing act. Well, it's no different than me representing somebody in the sale of their land. I want to look out for their best interest and make sure they're taken care of all the way through and that everything that they don't think of, I'm going to think of them. And it's no different than me representing the landlords in the sale of their timber. Yes, I charge a commission, but I'm more than confident that I can pay for myself in the marketing and even what I'm going to leave you for the future. If that's your objective, if you want to have do something good long term, I'm all in. I, I'm, I'm more than happy to leave good trees for the future. And so... I even tell them, I say, let's say, let's say I don't do any better for you than you could do for yourself. I can tell you this, if you sell in the shares compared to me, market selective, you're going to have a much better timber stand down the road. And I pay for myself just in that alone, because you never know 20, 30 years down the road when something, something comes up and you need $30,000 for, for something that's come up. And now you've got some timber to go after and pay for it if you need to. How difficult is it for a price? Like, and, and I would look at it from a buyer perspective, looking at, at buying a property that has timber on it. How mm-hmm. difficult is it for, say, a private investor to get into timber investment? It's not hard to get into it. You just have to do some due diligence to make sure that just because it's got timber on it doesn't mean it's good timber. Again, we go back to side index or poor ground. I get sometimes calls from people who want to look to buy some large tracks. They're, the shiny thing for them is the low price. 
And so they called me and they said, we know about this 4,000 acres in Eastern Kentucky in the mountains. Well, the cost of doing logging in the mountains is a lot more expensive than around here where I'm at. I'm not in the mountain part of Kentucky. So you got higher logging costs. You've got uh, access issues, potentially getting the timber out because these steep slopes, you know, there's a lot of road building and everything. And so what may seem attractive on the price of the land is not as attractive when you get into it and you look at all of it. Some of it doesn't even have uh, good access whatsoever. And so there's some areas you may not ever get to. So that's something that's got to be considered. How important is proximity to a mill? That's that's very important. Uh, we've got a place around me. There's I've got lots of competition, lots of mills. We have a lot of Amish north of me, several mills there. A uh, good, good amount of people who will compete for timber. But you can go between Louisville and Cincinnati, and it's almost like there's some up there, but very few. And I sold some timber up there about two years ago between Louisville and Cincinnati. And the buyers from my area came all the way up there to buy it and truck it, trucked it 80 miles back because um, that's where the markets were. And they could easily beat some of the markets that are up there. But yeah, you need to have, you need to have, that's something you need to be thinking of too. So, and I, I had a few other questions out here. Like I wanted to ask you about red flags. I feel like you just addressed a few of those, right? You want to make sure that you have uh proximity to a mill. You want to make sure that one, you do your diligence and pro I mean, I, I think the best and safest thing that anybody could do is probably talk to somebody like you. Um, but, but it, you know, you have to do a proper site index and just, and these are the things that you just don't think about just because it has timber doesn't mean it's worth anything. If you've got limbs going all the way down and, and you know, it's bad board, right? Like you've right. got knot, knot holes all over the board. It's things that it's not, yeah. it's easy to yeah. overlook that when you, when and you then, have your mindset on an investment. Right. And well, there's things other than that, that aren't tree related. It's the deed. Uh, mm, I always yeah. plot, I, every real estate agent needs to know how to plot a deed and, You'll be amazed at what you'll learn and you'll be amazed at how many problems you'll dig up by just plotting a deed, at least in my state. There's plenty of deeds that either don't close or they don't get you anywhere. It's like, how did these people buy this thing years ago? This deed is, it's bad. I, I got a lady that called to list a piece of property she had and it was basically a rectangle. It wasn't anything difficult about it, but her deed was it didn't tell me anything. I, I couldn't even go out there. I couldn't even find the corners. I knew where they should be, but there was no evidence on it. And much as I hated to tell her that we need to spend $6,000 on a survey, I said, you don't even have a good deed to convey to somebody. And so you don't want to buy a piece of property like that when you don't even have a, a decent deed without at least looking at it and making sure that it's, and plus you want to do obviously title opinion, things like that to make sure uh, you mean like, didn't even have like a meets and bounds reference on borders or anything like that? It basically referenced, you know, heading northerly uh, to Johnson's Corner, heading easterly to Smith's Corner. There was no calls in it. Oh, OK. It was just that it was just that bad. And you get into that. The farther east you go from me, you get into some really squirrely deeds and you <laughs> need to be you just need to. Things are done with a wink and a handshake and here's your hand. Right, right. Yeah. So so you're, you're talking about going out and checking things out and checking out the deeds. How, 
how does a real estate agent say without forestry experience, you know, evaluate, you know, woodland or, or anything that they might be, might be listing. Yeah. They repetition will be the best thing that'll help them. But I always think an agent should walk the property thoroughly. You know, I'm the type of person when I decide I'm going to buy something that's fairly big ticket, I really research it. And then I go out and I go to buy it. And if I see the salesman, I know more than the salesman. It's kind of a letdown for me because I've done my due diligence and yet you're the one that sells it and you don't, you don't know. And you're going to get those type of buyers that come in that have really got their facts down and are going to be ready. And you need to be able to take them and show them the whole place, but they need to one, get to know a consultant in the area if they can, that would be somebody they can at least reference. If they know somebody in the timber industry, even if they're working for a sawmill and they realize they have a vested interest to buy timber cheap. But if you've got somebody you can rely on to just say, look, this looks like a pretty good track of timber. Can you take a look at it and just get somebody's eyes on it? But if you go into a set of woods and you see some like, wow, this is, this seems like a really big, some really nice timber or if the landowner says we haven't cut the timber for 50 years, that should give you a clue that there's probably some value there that you need to look at and, um, you know, see it, get, do some more investigating. I, I have a map program called uh, Train Navigator Pro, and it has, I can probably go back 30 years on maps. And so I can go back and look and tell when it was cut last, if it was cut in the last 30 years. Because I don't necessarily rely on when the landowner says this is when it was cut last because they they can get just like me. I'll forget the years, the years go by, but I can go back to, you know, 1989, 1990, and then start clicking forward and see if there's a change in the canopy that, uh, you know, shows up. And then you can usually tell, okay, if it was cut in 2010 and now we're at 2023, chances are it's probably not that marketable. Around here, 15 to 20 years between sales is pretty close. That's pretty close because you only get about two diameter inches of growth every 10 years in my area. So if it was 16 inch trees you left, you know, they're 18 inches in 10 years, 20 inches in 20 years. So, yeah. So, what is the, uh, tell me about the hardwood market in general. You know, what's the, what sort of backing on the history and then what, what does the kind of future hold for, for hardwood markets in your opinion? Generally the hardwood market has, has always been a good investment, a good hedge against inflation, but I've seen things since 2000 that I've never seen. And so when 2000, when the pandemic hit to 2020, I'm sorry, the, um, in about, the first quarter was good, and then May hit. Of course, everything kind of changed. And what was interesting is everybody started staying home and building, doing projects. And the pine market just took off like crazy because pine is your building blocks of framing and everything like that. Well, hardwoods are more interior things. They're not. So the the hardwood market from May of 2020 to September dropped probably at least 25%. It was kind of, it was a slow period. And the but pipeline then, became more valuable than gold. <laughs> it did, it did. But then what happened is the hardwood market took off and went up over the next year, went up almost 70%. That's just how crazy it, it just took off like I've never seen it. 
And that's when White Oak and all these other things took off. And it came down to earth last year, but White Oak has taken back off. And so today White Oak is just what's pulling everything. And but right now, and everybody knows that, you know, the economy's moving along, but it's not exactly just gangbusters. But we've had sawmills go out of business around the country, lots of them. We've had loggers get out of the business. And so we've got a situation where we got a little demand and little supply because we don't have the producers we used to have. And so now we have a lack of supply, which is pushing prices up because the people can't get them. I mean, the industry can't get the, the logs. That's just really the the main thing that's going on with the white oak. You just competition for it and people that want it, and it's just not enough of it there. So it's yeah. right now it's a good time to sell. I I, I don't predict the future because if I did, I could make a lot of money on it, but I just can't predict the future on the, the hardwood industry. Well, based on what you're talking about with supply and demand is now the time for conservation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It just seem. Yeah. I mean, I get more excited now than I was when I got into this because I've been around long enough to go into some of my other stands that I've done years ago and I can find the areas I think I could have done better on and what I what I did good on. But my gosh, I walk in there. I say, why did I leave that tree 20 years ago? And then I realized that tree wasn't that big 20 years ago. It was smaller. You know, there's a reason I left it. But it's really, it really is a good investment. It doesn't require maintenance as far as unless, you know, you're maintaining trails. It's just a, it's a investment sitting there growing. Obviously there's risk with any investment. You could have, uh, you know, storms come through and things like that, that can wreak havoc that there's risk with anything, but it's just a, a, it's just good diversification in your, in your portfolio if you can have it. Yeah, most definitely. Well, man, I, so I, I do feel like I need to have you back for another, uh, another episode here. I, I try to, it's like, man, we get to a good point in, in talking about those. Um, but uh, dude, Craig, I appreciate your time talking about like this is fascinating. Um, let me let me make one other point. Just okay, no, I, no, don't let me cut you off. I don't want to. <laughs> well, I tell I tell clients this because I, I just want them to keep this in mind. Okay, you you have land, you have timber, and you have your your markets for both. And you could be in a really bad. Let's say you own a timberland track, and it's got some open land. It doesn't matter. But if you got timberland up, and you can have. Um, a bad real estate market and you can have a really bad timber market, but the, so you're losing on both of those on that year. Let's say it's just a really bad market, but the timber grows every year. You of that three-legged stool. You never lose. You, you always gaining in volume winning every year. It's just when you cash that volume out. So that's what makes timber such a good investment it's because it's growing every year. Doesn't matter whether the market's good or bad. It's there. And so it's going to increase. And it's amazing. I've done some inventory that I got to go back in 15 years after I inventoried and inventoried again. And some, I just couldn't believe how much these stands grew and responded and the growth rate, some four or 5%. And you think four or 5%, that don't sound too good, but you know, 4%, 4% you know, 10 years, that's 40%, you know, so it really does add up and it's just a it's just a joy to own anything that's in timberland i think even not where you're at i mean you got some phenomenal stuff out there too so i was gonna say you're making me jealous and i feel like you know being out here in a, in a pine area it's like man if we just had some hardwoods <laughs> well 
it's a function of soils and stuff like that and conditions. So trees grow where they can compete and hardwood doesn't compete over there where you're at. Yeah, it's so, very, very true. So awesome. Craig, I really the appreciate your time. I appreciate your time and knowledge. Um I I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface with you and I am having a hard time even retaining it. Um, I love it. This is so good. Thank you. Um, so thank you very, very, very much for your time. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if any national land agents need to reach out to me, feel free to. I was going to say, and any landowners need to reach out to you to get get some, to, to make sure that they're doing things right. Yeah. Thank you so much.